at WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman, not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. And as always, we welcome questions you may have as you're studying the word of God. Uh, this is an opportunity for you to call in if you have a question. And by God's grace, we'll do the best to try to respond to questions you have, maybe a personal issue that you're facing in your life, and you'd like to discuss that to get biblical counsel. Again, the number is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number for those who might not be in the immediate area, and that number is 877-WAGP980. When you call, you can simply dictate your question, or if you like, you can go on the air live. You also have an opportunity to email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. tbl at wagp.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here for the Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, we, we weren't here last week, so we've had a number of people that called in and dictated questions. So let's get to them right now. A caller would like you to explain who are the vast multitude of people that John sees in Revelation 7.13. Once you come to Revelation chapter 4, a door is opened up in heaven and you see John witnessing a great number of events all the way until the second coming of Christ. And so the scene in heaven beginning in Revelation 4 is the scene that will transpire after the rapture of the church, really the final seven years. What is interesting, too, is that although the church has been repeatedly mentioned in the first three chapters, it's never mentioned between four until chapter 19 when Jesus comes back with his saints. Uh, Just prior to the verse that you're referencing uh, this morning, John says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed. Uh, This sealing took place. This angel comes from God uh, from heaven sent by God, and he puts the seal of the living God on people's foreheads such that uh, they can't be harmed. Uh, No one can hurt these people. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, Reuben, 12,000, Gad, 12,000, and so forth, 144,000 people. After these things, and by the way, what do these 144,000 do? Well, we learn a little bit later in the Revelation that these are the people who go preaching the gospel uh, throughout the earth during this uh, time frame. And so after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes 
and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. So you have a beautiful scene of worship going on in heaven with people who are clothed in robes of white. And of course, um, these people are further identified. Uh, He says, if you drop down to 13, one of the elders answered saying to me, those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. So because of the ministry of these 144,000 Jewish men, who are sealed with the seal of God so that no one can touch or harm them. And they have a great preaching ministry that's unfolded here in the Revelation. Because of that, there's a great multitude that no one can count. And these are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are saved during the time of the tribulation period. These are people who refuse to take the mark of the beast. These are people who choose to believe and identify with Jesus as the Messiah. And so they are indeed clothed in white robes because they have the righteousness of Christ that comes from his sinless blood that was shed on their behalf and their faith in him. And of course, to identify with Messiah during the tribulation period for many will mean persecution. And that's what has happened to these individuals. These are people who refuse to uh, take the mark of, of the beast they refuse to uh, acknowledge the Antichrist in his so-called ministry. And um, because of that, well, they're beheaded. And so, but they're in heaven here now worshiping God. Their time of persecution and tribulation is over. Now, let me just say parenthetically, sometimes people will ask, how does this passage dovetail with what Paul says in Second Thessalonians 2? where he seems to indicate that there are people who are unable to believe that they've made a conclusion that there is no salvation during the tribulation period. Actually, there's a great revival, probably unequaled in all of human history, that will take place during the great tribulation period. One, the Jews will come, and so Jeremiah the prophet refers to the tribulation period as the time of Jacob's trouble. And not only will the Jews as a nation largely turn to Jesus and believe in him, the evangelists of the day will be Jewish men. They'll be the Billy Grahams of the day, 144,000 of them all over the face of the earth preaching that Jesus is Lord. Jewish people who've been gloriously converted. And there will be multitudes of people who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power who will repent and turn and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, those people who prior to the Great Tribulation period had opportunity because of their lack of response, there'll be a judicial hardening that will come upon them because they refuse to respond to the truth because of their love of sin. As Second Thessalonians 2 teaches, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. But these are people who have not heard before. 
And so the greatest harvest of souls is in front of us, is going to happen during the time of the Great Tribulation period. Huge revivals, unequaled in all of human history. And that's who these people are identified as, as you just keep reading in the chapter. All right, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And uh, we do have a live caller. We always give live callers preference, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I I believe in security and my salvation. And as you know, there's many who believe that you can walk away from it or you don't have that security. And when I get confronted with that, um, one of the things I point to is I ask them the question about David. I said, so you know that he his heart was after the Lord's, and that when he committed the sin with Bathsheba, so he, and then, of course, the murder of Uriah, are you telling me that you believe that if that was before his confession, which came afterwards when Nathan, of course, gave him the parable and opened his eyes and he confessed, that during that period of time that if he would have died, that he would have been condemned? And they say, yes. And I'm, and I'm telling them that I don't believe that. <clears throat> and they'll point to the verse in chapter 12, verse 13, where... You know, Nathan tells him that the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. And then I tell them that I think that that refers to an earthly death, not to his spiritual death. Mm -hmm. So could you just clarify that for me and speak to that? Sure. It's a great question. And and let me just say that uh, King David was indeed, it says it three times over in the Scripture, a man after God's own heart. And the sin that he committed with Bathsheba was a sin that he committed, uh, you know, while he was converted. He was converted as a young man. As a young man, of course, he he faced uh, Goliath. And he says, I come to you not in my own strength, but in the strength of the Lord God of hosts. Uh, He came in the strength of the Lord God of Israel. And uh, he was clearly converted. He was the one who played those glorious uh, psalms to uh, Saul when he was tormented by an evil spirit. And when David played that godly music, the uh, the devil fled, the demons fled. I think uh, your friends who, of course, deny the doctrine of eternal security, and there are Christians that do this, unfortunately, uh, they represent possibly 10%, depending on which missiologist you read, but pro- approximately 10% of Christians in the world today deny the doctrine of eternal security. They teach that you can be assured of salvation, but not eternally secure. And there is a distinction. Uh, Those folks who say, I'm assured of my salvation, say, I know right now I'm saved. They just fail to acknowledge that they might be saved a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now because they think that they might do something that would uh, sever their salvation and cause them to lose it. And what they fail to do is to make a distinction that the Bible makes between our relationship with God and our fellowship with God. The moment a person believes on Christ as their Savior, of course, David is an old covenant saint, but we can still use him as an example. Uh, The difference was, is he was looking forward to Messiah who would come. And God had given David much information. He had promised him in 2 Samuel 7 that there would be one who would sit on his throne 
who would sit on there forever. It was a messianic promise. And David knew what God had plainly taught, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so he was one who looked to God to provide salvation through Messiah. And he had been given a great promise that Messiah would actually come through his family lineage. In either case, um, the moment David believed, like the day in hour and moment a person believes today, you enter into a relationship with God that's eternally secure. So there are passages like Colossians 1, Colossians 2, Hebrews 10, Ephesians 2, Romans 3, that teaches all of our sin, past, present, and future, is eternally forgiven the moment we believe. That's an eternal relationship. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, John 6, 47 teaches. Now, a lot of folks who think of eternal life, when they think of eternal life, they think of something way down there in the future, something you get when you die. They typically associate eternal life with a place. But eternal life in the New Testament is associated with a relationship, not a place. This is eternal life, Jesus said. Here's a definition of it. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God in a personal, intimate way, not just knowing of his existence. Even the heathen know of that, Romans 1 teaches, but knowing God through a second birth because you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. You've become a temple of the Spirit, and God opens your eyes. He opens your thoughts. He, he comes to teach you and instruct you and reveal himself to you in a way that you could not know prior to conversion. That's an eternal relationship. That's why throughout the New Testament, eternal life can be described in a present tense. Uh, Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Tell me, if I have eternal life right now, as passages like John 6, 47 teach, how long is eternal life? Well, it's eternal. You, You can't lose something that's eternal. That's an oxymoron. That's a contradiction of terms. However, there are other passages in the New Testament that teach that while my relationship with God is eternal. My fellowship with God is a moment-by-moment kind of thing, and it's broken when we sin. And so when David sinned against God by committing really multiple murder, not just the murder of Uriah, but because of the order given to Uriah, many of his own men ended up dying and uh, in the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he broke fellowship with God. And so he really describes himself in that broken state of fellowship and what it was like in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. He said, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit? When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And so David is describing himself while he was basically covering over his sin. And so by the time Nathan the prophet comes to him, that you reference Nathan and the parable that he tells, uh, it had been almost a year because uh, the baby is about to be born. And so it had been about a year's time. Actually, the baby had been born. And so nine months had gone by. The baby was born. The baby's an infant. And, of course, Nathan comes and tells his parable, and he says, you're the man. And David sees it, and then he confesses his sin. And so he goes on in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. And then God is speaking here and God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And so David said, when I acknowledge my sin, he dealt with the guilt of sin. And then God began to be able to teach David once again. Uh, what's interesting in Psalm 51, it's a little bit different. He says, be gracious to me, O God. And by the way, in, at the header of Psalm 51, the headers are inspired. In fact, in my Hebrew Bible, uh, verse 1 of Psalm 51 is for the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Beth, into Bathsheba. And then verse 2, which is verse 1 in our English Bible, is be gracious to me. Now, above Psalm, uh, above that header for, to the choir director, the New American Standard has, and it's in italics and bold print, a contrite sinner's prayer for pardon. That's not inspired. In fact, if you have different editions of the Bible, the ESV, the NIV, the uh, New King James, whatever, they will have different headers for all of those because that's just a publisher's note. That's a translator's note to help you when you flip through the Bible to discover, oh, what's this chapter about? Those, those headers are not inspired by God. Uh, but the, um, the, the notes to the choir director, that is inspired. And again, in the Hebrew Bible, they count that as the first verse. And then he says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. He said, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. What's he talking about? He's talking about that time when he covered over his sin with Bathsheba. Was he still saved? Yes. He had an eternal relationship with God. Was he in fellowship with God? No. Um, and so then David begins to deal with his sin. He said, uh, he confesses, look, I was brought forth in iniquity. From the moment of conception and sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, but your desire, God, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you'll make me to know wisdom. And then he goes on and he describes his cleansing when he asked God to wash him and to make him whiter than snow, to create in him a clean heart, uh, not to cast them away from his presence. And then a unique Old Testament prayer, not to take thy Holy Spirit from me. Uh, that is an Old Testament prayer, that portion of verse 11. No New Testament saint could pray that. But an Old Testament saint could because, number one, the Holy Spirit came just upon unique individuals whom God had set apart for a purpose. And, of course, when Saul sinned against God, David saw the Spirit of God leave him. Now, how that visibly happened, we're not told, but somehow David was able to visibly see the Spirit of God depart from Saul. And he knew that, uh, that God was displeased. And David, I think, feared that the same could happen to his life as the anointed one, as the king. That God's presence on his life would, would leave. And so he says, don't cast me from your presence. And please, you know, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. And then he says, and this is the opposite of Psalm 32, where God says, I will teach you. Here, David says, then I will teach transgressors. 
your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And that's why your ability as a Christian to teach, some are gifted in that area, all carry the responsibility, is predicated on your fellowship with God. For God to be able to teach you is critical to your being able to teach others. So when God's able to instruct your heart, then you're really in a position to instruct the hearts of other people. And so, again, this deals with our fellowship with God. So here, here's a way to kind of look at it. Your relationship with God is eternal. It begins the moment you receive Christ. It can never be broken. Um, When you enter into this relationship with God, he becomes your father. He becomes your son. That's true of your relationship with God. Your fellowship with God, it begins the moment you're saved. But it's not an eternal thing. It's a moment-by-moment thing, and it's broken when we sin. My relationship with God begins when I call upon Jesus Christ for salvation, when I come to him in faith. My fellowship with God is restored when I confess my sin. So Pentecostals, who typically would fall into the realm of people that you're describing who say one can lose salvation, will use 1 John 1, 9 as an example of the necessity to keep your sins confessed up to date so that you don't die with any unconfessed sin, that you're, quote-unquote, under their terminology, under the blood, uh, so that you can die as a saved person. But 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, has nothing to do with salvation. That verse is not written to lost people. That's a verse written to saved people. John says, listen, I'm writing these things that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John is saying, I'm writing that you can have intimacy with God. He's not talking about our relationship with God, at least not in this section of 1 John. He's talking about our fellowship with God. And he's talking about the fact that unlike the false teachers, the Gnostics, or at least pre-Gnostics, who are coming into the church who are saying that they never sinned, he says, listen, we all sin. And when we sin, we lose intimacy with God, and that's why it's essential that we walk in the light as he's in the light, that the blood of his Son might continue to cleanse us. But uh, that cleansing is predicated on true confession. If we confess our sin, then God is faithful and just. This is not salvation forgiveness. This is family forgiveness. When I'm born in a physical way of an earthly dad, he becomes my father. I become his son because I'm born of his seed. That is something that cannot be broken. Now, there might be times in a parent-child relationship where maybe the child does something to wrong the father, where their intimacy is lost, but there's still father-son. You can't erase that. Well, when you're born not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, when you're born again, you enter into an eternal relationship with God that can never be severed. But your intimacy with God can. So um, these are confused people who say that you can lose salvation, and they're mishandling the Scripture, and they're mishandling critical passages in the Word of God. Um, nonetheless, David, even with all of his sin, can still be called a man after God's own heart because he's a man who's willing to face his sin, not cover it, confess it, forsake it. He was unable to dissolve the consequences of the sin, just like in the parable when Nathan said, oh, you know, what should be done? And David said he ought to pay fourfold. Well, David paid fourfold. Go back and read, of course, the rest of the text, and you'll discover he loses four family members because of his own sin.
Anyway, uh, let's go on to the next All question. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. In Second Peter 2, it says in verse 11, the angels never speak out disrespectfully against them. And in verse 1, they will turn against their master. Are these people saved? Second Peter chapter 2 is parallel to the book of Jude. They're both writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so there's very similar things that the Spirit of God brings to Jude's mind and that he brings to Peter's mind. They're not copying off each other, as the liberal critic would say. Uh, The Spirit of God will very often, throughout the Word of God, repeat truth because God knows that we learn by repetition. In fact, that's one of the themes that Peter teaches in his first epistle, the need to repeat himself. Sometimes I think I preach a sermon, I ought to come back the next week and preach this same sermon all over again. And if people ask me why, I'll say, well, I'm just doing what Peter says. I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. And uh, many times you don't have a truth until you hear it several times. And you really have a truth when you can, in turn, turn around and teach it to someone else. If I I say to you, um, do you believe in the doctrine of eternal security? Getting to our caller's last question, you say, yes. Well, can you show me five passages that teach the doctrine of eternal security? Well, that that puts it in a whole other realm. How well do I really know the doctrine of eternal security? And by the way, I didn't comment on this with the last question. Uh, but there are passages, and this is a good example in Second Peter 2, that our Arminian friends, those who uh, lift the free will of man so high above the sovereign will of God that they say that the free will of man can override the sovereign will of God. Listen, there are some decisions that you make that are irreversible. You put a gun to your head and shoot yourself. You, as an act of a free will, made a decision, but it's an irreversible decision. You've killed yourself. When a person receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, they've made an irreversible decision. They are eternally a child of God. And, of course, as Paul will argue in Romans, that's not a reason for license. That's a reason for holiness. Well, the teachers that he deals with in 2 Peter 2, as Jude does in his small little letter, are dealing with what we call apostates. An apostate is someone who came up to the edge of salvation, didn't step into the kingdom, in fact, turned away. He chose to reject Christ. And so Peter says, listen, in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament era. There are false prophets who arose among the people, just as in our day as well, there will also be false teachers among you. What will they do? Well, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. That's what they're known for doing, even denying the master who bought them. Uh, They're classic at this. They come in in the garb of Christianity, but they're false teachers. Uh, I just got off the phone with someone asking me about the Alpha Course and Nikki Gumbel. Nikki Gumbel has all kinds of heretical doctrine, all kinds of error that's associated with his ministry. He's the genesis of the Toronto laughing revivals where people laugh uncontrollably on the floor and bark like animals. You tell me that's of God? Listen, the devil will often come in in the garb of Christianity. That's why they're able to come into the church and introduce destructive heresies. That's exactly what the book of Jude teaches. I mean, how is it that these people can get in? He says, listen, beloved, when I was originally going to write you a book of Romans to tell you about our common salvation, Jude 3 says, I felt the necessity to appeal to you that you contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Because he says certain persons 
have crept in unnoticed. How do they creep in unnoticed? They look like Christians. They, they, they walk like Christians. They smell like Christians, but they're not Christians. And so Jude is writing to describe how do you spot these phonies? Um, how do you spot these people who creep in unnoticed? Uh, those who long beforehand were mocked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord God into licentiousness, deny our only master and savior, Jesus Christ. And he says, I'll tell you how. I want you to know what they look like. That's what Peter is doing here in Second Peter chapter 2. And he says, and these, and uh, many will follow their sensuality, Second Peter 2, 2. And that's what these folks are about. Um, they are evil. And they offer people um, a form of Christianity where they can enjoy their sin at the same time. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. So he's describing false teachers who come in among you, who secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Why? Because Jesus, when he died, he didn't die for some. He died for all. He died even for these false teachers. But they deny the master who bought them, and they bring swift condemnation, destruction upon themselves. And so uh, he says, we're not to be asleep. And then he goes on, and he gives a long trail of apostasy of people who at different ages in the Old Testament came in as professing believers, but they were phonies. And so then coming down here to verse 10, uh, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. This parallels again what, what Michael the archangel did. When he was confronted with the devil and they argued over the body of Moses, some kind of uh, argument took place over Moses' body when he died. Maybe the devil wanted to dra- drag it out and use it as an icon or who knows. But um, in either case, uh, there was a, a, a dispute, and Jude records that, and, and Michael the archangel says, the Lord rebuke you. He doesn't say, I rebuke you. He says, the Lord rebuke you. He, he comes in God's power and God's authority, not in his own. But you see, these false teachers, they're, they're not like that. They come with an authority that is not rooted and grounded in the Lord God. And they are phonies. And, of course, when it comes down to the end of the chapter, for after they have escaped—well, let me bring it down to uh, verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom— while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they again are entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And that's what they do. They come into the church. They're salted a little bit by the church. They're lighted a little bit by the church. They appear for a while to have genuine conversion. But it's just the godly influence of the church upon their life that makes some external changes. But the changes are not internal. And there are people like that. They walk the aisle of the church. They tell you, I've received Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. They can tell you that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. They publicly confess it with baptism. But it's not genuine. And again, we can, as pastors, only go by what people say. 
If a person says, yes, I've trusted Jesus as Lord, the best test is time, the New Testament teaches, because if their conversion is genuine, they will persevere. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. And so there are these people who come in and they escape the defilements of the world by their, the knowledge that they have of Jesus Christ. But because conversion is not real, true, genuine on the inside, they're overcome. And their last state becomes worse than their first. And then he says it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having to known it to turn away from the Holy Commandment. Why is that? Because judgment on unbelievers, the Bible teaches, is predicated on the m- amount of revelation that you have. That's why Jesus said to some cities, hey, it will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom than it will be for you. Because if the miracles had, that had been performed in Sodom, if those same miracles had been performed in Sodom that I performed in your, in your cities, the people of Sodom would have repented. Uh, but you had great revelation and you did nothing with it. Well, these are men who knew the gospel of Jesus Christ and the righteousness and the change that he brings. But they didn't do anything with it. And so he says it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit. And a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. He's saying though they outwardly made a confession, inwardly they were not changed. They had the nature of a dog or a pig. And dogs and pigs are used often in Scripture to describe unbelievers. You can take a hog and get them all ready for the county fair, clean them up, buff his skin, put a ribbon around his neck, add some perfume to the top, and he can look great. But when you bring him back from the county fair, he's going to go right back into the mud and get in it. And you can clean a person up on the inside, but unless they've been born twice on the— you can clean a person up on the outside, but unless they've been born twice on the inside— there's no real change that takes place. And that's what Second Peter 2 is dealing with. And so, again, there are some folks who will use this passage to say this is describing a person who had salvation and lost it. No, it's not. This is describing an apostate, a person who walked up to the edge of the kingdom but did not step in. And that's what Jesus talks about when he speaks of those who will fall away. The Greek word is apostasia and comes directly into English as apostasy. They fall away from what they knew to be true. And when you just read Second Peter 2 and you read the description of these people, uh, they don't tremble at holy things that they should tremble at. Um, they are people who uh, are stains, blemishes. They revile in deception. They uh, have eyes full of adultery. Uh, they follow the example of Balaam, the son of Beor, whom the New Testament tells us was a was a lost man who today is in hell. Uh, These are people who are not saved. And so the tenor of the passage is very, very clear that that is what here is in view. So great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. That uh, caller that had the question about the uh, doctrine of eternal security had a follow-up. He, or actually dictated, he said, uh, if you know basically what you said, if you know this is what the Bible says, is it wrong to be with a Christian that believes they can lose their salvation? Well, that, that again, is a, a, fair, a fair question. There's about 150 passages in the New Testament that teach the doctrine of eternal security. What sometimes we have paraphrased in the last 50 or 60 years as once saved, always saved. 
And again, there's a lot of uh, gross misunderstandings to the doctrine of eternal security. People say, well, you know, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven and I got saved when I was 15 and I know I shouldn't live with my girlfriend and get drunk and high on dope, but I'm saved because, you know, once saved, always saved. And I may not have much reward when I get to heaven, but I'm going because once I'm saved, I'm always saved. No, those are folks who are deceived. Because the grace of God that brings us salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in the present age, Paul will say to Titus in Titus 2. Um, No, uh, again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So you have about 150 passages in the New Testament that teach eternal security, about 10 that at first glance seem to teach that you can lose your salvation. And I just gave you an example. Uh, of one from Second Peter 2. But when you read the whole chapter, it becomes very apparent that the tenor of the chapter is that of an unsaved man. And the illustration at the end of a man who is like a, a hog that goes back into the mud to walla is an indication that the person has never had his nature fundamentally changed. But some would say, well, you know, he, he escaped the defilements of the world. But then he goes back, and now he's in a worse state. You see, he was saved and he was lost. Now you just keep reading, and Scripture it explains itself. And so the passages that people use to say that you can lose your salvation, when you look at them carefully in their context, uh, there's an apparent answer. So another classic one, I'll give you number two of ten, and you might count eight, but there's a couple that are found in different epistles, and so they're parallel texts, so you might count as many as ten. But, for instance, in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower, Luke gives a unique uh, insight that in the synoptics of uh, Matthew and Mark, where the parable is also given, this is not mentioned. And those on the rocky soil who are those who, when they hear the word, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Again, this is a description of apostasy, not someone who is saved and then loses it. This is a description of someone who comes to the edge of salvation. They believe for a while, but it's intellectual only. There are passages in the Bible where it describes someone as having believed, but they're not necessarily saved. Now, whenever you see the word believe with the preposition in or in Old English on or onto, it's describing true conversion. But the word believe all by itself does not necessarily describe genuine faith. The demons believe, James says, and tremble. That's not a description of uh, saving faith. In John 8, when Jesus describes uh, men who are slaves of sin, they say, well, you know, he says, if, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as, as it is, you're seeking to kill a man, me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. They said, we were not born of fornication. They accused Jesus of being born of an illegitimate relationship outside of wedlock, denying, of course, the miraculous virgin conception. We have one father, even God. Jesus said, if God were your father, you'd love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come down on my own initiative, but he that sent me. Uh, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil. You desire to do the desires of your father, the devil. He was a murderer. 
from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So question, when you just read a, a text like that, does it sound like these people are saved or lost? You'd say, well, obviously they're, they're, they're a lost pastor. Okay, well, look how this group is introduced in John eight thirty one. Therefore, uh, Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, the text said they had believed him. Was it true saving belief? No, it was not. It was intellectual only. They had not believed into Jesus, onto Jesus. It was just an intellectual belief. And yet they were giving intellectual credence to him, but that's all it was. And Jesus unfolds and shows them that that's all it was. It wasn't genuinely true. So there are Pentecostal friends who, and others who say you can lose your salvation. If they have the gospel, if they believe that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works, I will fellowship with them. Um, if they have uh, some other weird doctrines that are less than orthodox, that are fundamental to embrace, to call yourself a true Christian, I will not fellowship with them. So if a church, say, denies biblical inerrancy, I just got off the phone with a guy who was involved in a church in our town that's cooperative Baptist. I said they, they, they try to hide that they're cooperative Baptists, but I said I get the annual report, and they still every year give to the cooperative Baptist churches. I said, and cooperative Baptists deny biblical inerrancy. They deny the infallibility of the Word of God. That was one of the things in which they based their whole organization on, that you didn't have to believe in biblical inerrancy to be a cooperative Baptist. I said, I won't fellowship with those people. I I won't endorse their ministries. Why? Because they're denying fundamentally a truth that is essential and a mark of true, genuine conversion. But again, they look like Christians. They smell like Christians. They walk like Christians. But that's how the devil operates. He comes as an angel of light. He disguises himself. He doesn't typically come with a a pitchfork and a cloven hoofs and a pointed tail and say, I'm the devil. No, he, he comes looking like a Christian. And that's why we need to be alert and discerning. So if someone denies the doctrine of eternal security, but they have the gospel, I'll fellowship with them. I might not be real excited about what they embrace concerning the loss of salvation. And, I'll, and I know out of experience, not that I base my theology on experience, but I know that people typically who are in churches like that are uh, confused. In fact, typically if someone is in a church that denies the doctrine of eternal security, I can flip a coin 50-50 with most of their me- members whether or not they're saved. Because I'll meet just as many people who are lost in churches like that who are saved. Because typically when you teach, you can do something to lose your salvation. What people hear is you have to do something to earn your salvation. And they hear a works righteousness. Now, there are some Christian men who will not fellowship at all with an Arminian um, who believes that you can lose salvation. I will. But again, if there's some central doctrine of the faith that must be embraced and counted on, like the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection, the infallibility of the word of God, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and they deny some central doctrine of the faith that you must believe in order to be counted, genuinely converted, then I will not fellowship with them. So that's where I draw the line. All right, great question. Let's go to the next. All right, very good. Um, This... uh 
Speaking of uh, friends that you fellowship with, this person writes, I've been asking the Lord for a deeper desire for heavenly treasure because the material things are not satisfying and don't hold any weight in eternity. The Bible tells us that only his word will endure forever. And I've been seeking the eternal treasure but have received rebuke for this desire from other believers who've told me that I'm being unappreciative of what God has blessed me with. I've also been told that my faith is based in unbiblical teaching, but I want to ask, how does Romans 14 apply to this situation I face? I don't condemn those who are rejecting me, but instead I weep for them in prayer. Well, you know, man's case seems just until another comes and examines it, Proverbs tells us. So uh, I've got your side of the story. I wish I had some of your friends here to tell me their side of the story in terms of how they're perceiving your response. Now, it is true. I've met Christians who, in the name of laying up treasure in heaven, uh, in the name of wanting their life to count for an eternity, uh, become uh, almost like the pietistic monks, monks of the 12th century where they deny all material goods. They, they, they suffer physically. Um, they live and take sometimes even a vow of poverty in they think that that monastic expression of life is maybe more biblical and more godly. Listen, some of God's chief servants that he uses as outlined throughout both Testaments were very wealthy people. Abraham was heavy in wealth. Uh, Job was a very rich man before and even richer after he had gone through great trials. Joseph was the same. Numerous people who are very, very wealthy that God chooses to use. Even in the New Testament, there are examples that we could look at. But uh, the question is, how do you view your things? Uh, God, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, has given us all good things to enjoy. So if God gave you something, I mean, if it, if it really came from the hand of God, then he's given it to you to enjoy. If it didn't come from his, from his hand, then it doesn't matter whether you bought it on sale or got a good deal on it. You know, sometimes people make excuses. Oh, you know, this new suit and oh, I got it on sale. Well, again, if God wanted you to have it, it didn't matter whether you got it on sale or not. Now, you might have been a good steward to wait till it went on sale. But if God didn't want you to have it, it, it didn't matter how much you paid for it. So here's, here's, the, uh, here's the balance. Uh, of course, First Timothy 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Uh, probably one of the more misquoted verses in the Bible. Um, it doesn't say the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's not articular in the original. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a pang. So flee these things. Flee what? Flee the love of money in uh, controversies and disputes that are non-essential to godly living and uh, things like that, being content with where God has placed you and, and not trying to pursue things that God doesn't want you to have. Flee these things, you men of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance and gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord. And then he'll say, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to sell all their riches and to become poor, but instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, 
or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. See, if God's blessed you with much, sometimes the tendency is to become kind of prideful, like you're a big shot, like you've got so much that um, you're greater than they are and that you have this power over other people. Uh, That's just a form of greed. Uh, It's a form of pride. It's a form of conceit. It's the Lord thy God that has given you power to make wealth, the Bible says. So if God has blessed you, he's the one who blessed you. It didn't come just from your own hand. And so he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So again, if God's given you something, enjoy it. Don't apologize for it. Enjoy it. But then he says, instruct them, and that's italicized in the NAS because it's added by the translators uh, in order to smooth out the reading, but it's implied there. Instruct them, he's talking about those who are rich, uh, to 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 do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. Why? So that they might store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Three things will last for eternity, God his word, and his, and, and his people. And you could add really a fourth category, angels. So God, his word, people, and angels are eternal. This whole planet in the end will be consumed and burned with fire. Everything you see on the planet someday will melt. The only thing that will last are treasures that are laid up in heaven. And so Jesus exhorts us to lay up godly treasures. So I don't know how your friends are perceiving you, but if they are perceiving you like, you're monastic and you can't enjoy life, then, then they're right and you need to listen. Um, but if they're just so engaged in the temporal that they're not really engaged in things that matter, that are eternal, uh, then, then they're wrong. So how do you lay up eternal treasure? Well, partly how you use your money, whether you're a good steward of it. Uh, God will give, uh, will give an account of our stewardship of our money, of our time. How do we use our time? You know, there are Christians who, who waste time, unfold huge m- amounts of time. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need time to relax and to key down and, and rest. Jesus modeled and taught the necessity of that. But there are Christians who've wasted a third of their life in front of a television set when they would have done better in investing in the kingdom of God. God will give, ask you to give an account of how you use your spiritual gift or gifts in natural talents. And there is a distinction between the two. You say, I don't even know what my spiritual gift is. Well, you better because you're going to give an account as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 9 and 10, God's going to evaluate how you use your spiritual gift, whether it's teaching or exhortation or evangelism or service or whatever it might be. So, um, Again, I only got one side of the story. I wish I had the other side, but I responded as best I was able. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next person wrote this. My husband was hurt four years ago in a car versus a motorcycle accident, and the person that hit him was not insured. She's been forgiven by my husband. But my question, he's on short-term disability because of his injuries. He has lost his job but has, not, uh, but has been trying to find a job through workshops with uh, disability. He feels good enough to go back to work, so he's been feeling convicted for being on disability because he feels like he can work but can't find a job, and he wants to call and cancel his disability and trust in God getting us the finance help we need. Can you give me your thoughts on this matter? Well, I admire his spirit in terms of wanting to work 
because there are people who get on government programs and disabilities, and I think, why is this person disabled? This is pathetic. This person isn't disabled. Saw this guy who's on disability because of two bad hips. He walks as good as I walk. I mean, what do you mean he's disabled and he's collecting and has been for 20 years? That's immoral. That's not right. Um, So, again, you know, he was in a car accident. He lost his job because of that. Uh, It forced him to go into disability, uh, you know, not because he desired it. And um, he should do everything in his power to try to get a job, and I'm sure he is. And you ought to bring that to your local church, if you haven't already, into your Sunday school class, into the fellowship that you're involved in, and ask God's people to earnestly pray with you that you're now entering into a new stage where you feel well enough to uh, get off of this disability and to go back to work. So I would encourage you to do that, to bring this to God's people so that you can um, do what you put, what God's put in your heart to do. So that's how I would pursue it. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Um, let me uh, just go ahead and uh, copy this real quick so that I can uh, see what it is. All right, in the recent Wednesday night series on apologetics, January 25th, part three, you talked about a lady who had her soul awakened after being in some mainline denomination for several years. What do you mean... Uh, soul awakened. I'm not familiar with that term. Well, I don't remember using that terminology. You know, when you when you preach and speak, sometimes you're you're preaching at 700 words a minute with you know gusts up to a thousand. Um, it's not necessarily a biblical term, but it's a biblical concept that God has to open the eyes of a person's heart. Second Corinthians chapter four and verse four. Um, well, let me just pull it back here. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness, adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. Again, uh, Jesus, when he described unbelievers, as we read earlier in this hour, he said, you are of your father, the devil. There is a spiritual battle that goes on for the minds and hearts and souls of people. And unless God lifts the veil, unless God allows a person to see the truth of the gospel, they will walk in darkness. And when God begins to operate in a person's heart, that's why there's an urgency to respond. That's why Jesus' exhortation in John 12, walk while the light is among you, that you might not be overcome by the darkness. Believe in the light that you might become sons of light. So what I was probably describing was a woman who had been in a mainline denomination where the gospel was not preached And her eyes were opened. Her soul was awakened. The Spirit of God was working and moving. Because by nature, there's none who seeks God, no, not one. And which is why Jesus twice over in John 6 said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws that individual. So God was working. He was awakening. He was opening her eyes. He was lifting the veil up to the truth of the gospel. That's why when you hear his voice, when you hear the gospel message... Don't harden your heart. We're out of time. Hope you have a great day. God bless you.